Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm excited to have the one and only Gary Marcus back on this week uh, to kind of talk. Uh, Gary... I had seen an interesting thread from you on Twitter there, oh, it was about a month ago, about an article that came out in Horde. So I thought it'd be a good time to talk about it because I know um, with the challenges of heat and everything else, you know, a lot of people look at uh, as repro is kind of their their key to success on their dairy. And and really repro drives everything. It drives milk, it drives uh, fat production. So I thought it'd be a good time just to kind of go over some of the information that we talked about or that you talked about on Twitter with the voluntary wait period. So maybe explain, uh, explain kind of the conversation that you had and, and what it means to somebody on the repro side and, and somebody as a primary producer. Yeah, sure. Uh, Keith, uh, again, thanks for having me back, I guess. Uh, but, um, I guess Twitter can be a little bit of a dangerous place, but, uh, <laughs> I guess it was an, an interesting conversation. Um, just, you know, the article that was being referenced was again, a, a little bit more on, um, you know, gaining late, late lactation milk. And, um, to me, I think there's a, there's a big difference, like every cow or every herd, even for that matter, has a pretty defined lactation curve on, yep. um, profit over, uh, feed over milk and, and profit associated with that. Um, and so when we start talking about lengthening lactations um, to quote unquote get or you know recoup what was being referenced as easy milk a little bit, um, just because again the cow is giving let's say 30, 35 liters or thirty liters, and you know let's again for example historically that's been acceptable um, or well not acceptable is not the right word but. Uh, too much to be giving to be put dry cold turkey. And then of course, you know, how do we manage those cows to be put dry that they're comfortable when mm-hmm. they put dry and mm-hmm. wean them off for a week. And then, you know, so rather than that, let's delay breeding to have those cows naturally dry off and, and take care of some or recoup some of that late lactation milk. Um, so with that, it was, you know, to manage that you have to move your, voluntary calling or voluntary wait periods um, to associate that. And um, I guess I think there's, uh, and from my opinion on on, um, just the producer level and, and I guess I'm in in the genetic side, um, is that actually profitable? Um, We see easy, easy milk, the term easy milk sounds really good, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, are we, what are, why is it easy milk? And it is why I want to ask that question. And uh, when, when producers bring that up um, to me, um, the most effective or efficient milk I can produce is when that cow is at max production. Uh, let's say in that 50 to 60 day range where she's giving, you know, I'm putting in, you know, somewhere around $4, $5 worth per kilo of butterfat 
feed um, and she's maximizing that into 15, 16 dollars of profit per day. You know, when, when we compare that to a dry, or sorry, not a dry cow, but a late lactation cow, we're still inputting that same four to five dollars per kilo of butterfat feed um, and recouping 10 to 12 dollars profit per, at, the end, at the end of the day. So to me, that's not the most efficient use of days on feed. Yeah. So something that kind of interests me from the nutrition side, I guess, is I look at where's that cow more efficiently going to produce milk. So if you look at the lactation cycle of a cow in the first, I think it is like four months or something like that, three to four months, um, she's going to use body reserves and feed to make production. In the next uh, four to eight months, she's typically going to kind of stay at that same weight and then have high dry matter intake. And then in the last part of that lactation, they're going to gain some weight back. And that's when they're going to start dropping off in, in uh, production. So my thoughts on this is if you wait to 200 days in milk to breed that cow, um, I think you're just going to have a whole lot of fat cows. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. And, and, and there are herds that are extreme production herds where this is a, um, a true issue, let's say. But I, I would say there's far more herds that are trying to manage their top 10, 15% of the herd because they are, let's say, um, well, they are their top cows and they are drying off at 35 liters. Mm -hmm. um, very few cows will carry that through to 40 liters. But what we're getting a little bit mixed in, mixed information is a lot of people are like, they want to push back that voluntary weight period is, is because they want to, they, A, they don't want a, a high producing cow to get pregnant and to quote unquote knock off her peak. Um, and they, they, we think that that will make them produce milk longer um, or at a higher performance level. The, the reality is peak is peak is essentially defined in the transition program or transition management. So how that cow transitions through her fresh freshening is going to predict her peak. Um, so and, and peaks usually almost always between depending again depending on the age mostly but between 50 and 70 days give or take and the average cow in anybody's herd um, is not pregnant in that time frame even if, if even if we run uh, a 50 day voluntary weight period um, you're, you're looking at at best you know you're in your good conception herds you're you're looking at somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of the herd being pregnant in that heat cycle so we're so if we're moving on because of that, we're going to make a decision on the herd standpoint, which is our, which is how we get paid. We get paid on the entire herd performance, not just on the individual herd, individual performance. We're going to make a net negatives decision for our best cows to breed them later to gain more milk off perceived um, assumptions that we're going to, we're going to carry peak rather than knock it off by breeding this cow and start that lactation curve and in, instead what we're doing is we're taking that that whole let's say let's say we had a voluntary wait period of 50 days and we want to move it to 70 days we're adding 20 days to essentially the minimum of 20 days to the entire herd's lactation length not just our top 10 percent that we're trying to focus on or we're we're 
we're sorry, not we're trying to focus on the group that we are focusing on. Mm-hmm. That group, yeah, may, maybe that group would be beneficial. But the other eighty percent of the herd, it's actually not beneficial at all. It's actually counterproductive because things like body score component goes up, and like you said, they start putting weight on their back, so that affects body score. So they enter dry cow pen fatter. They on a good chunk of those cows, you're going to actually add days dry, which we all know from our fields that you know the longer cows stay dry, generally speaking, statistically speaking that correlates negatively to metabolic issues, um, you know, all sorts of calving troubles because of fat. Um, all of those things start, that wheel starts to turn and we end up again, kind of biting ourselves in the foot to gain 10 days or 20 days at the end of a lactation where a cow is giving anywhere from let's say 30 to 35 liters. So well so, under herd average, typically. Yeah, in progressive herd, in these types yeah. of herds, absolutely under herd average. So the argument then becomes, well, what am I scared? As a producer, I'm asking myself, what, what am I scared of? And if I'm scared of my transition program, then should I not be focusing on my transition program to fix that so I don't have to worry about putting that cow dry and, and trying to get, again, max, you know, in the end of the day, cows are going to live, let's say, a thousand days for, uh, well, I guess that's not a good rep, 1500 days for um the average cow in your herd is going to live 1500 days. How many of those days can we have her in a production format? Yeah. And, you know, she's going to live the first 700 days, give or take again in uh, in a heifer pen. And so we have 700 to let's say a thousand days to maximize the average cow in our herds production lifespan. And the more days she's giving more milk, the more profit that that leads to, the producer's pocket and, and i see it too like we get talking about feed costs and i know that certain times of the year demand certain things like in the winter you know i've had producers in the past try and pull back on production and to have a herd that's averaging 200 days of milk or plus all the time it's next to impossible to change the meter on where that cow's producing but if you have a herd that's say 150 days in milk you can kind of afford to pull the pedal off the or pull the gas pedal back in, in the winter. And then, you know, when it comes into time, like now with incentives and heat stress and things like that, you can kind of put the gas back to them and, and you see a response. And I know, you know, just having a fresher herd, it just makes it more efficiently, in my opinion, to make milk. Oh, for sure. They just handle, they handle the ups and downs that management throws at them. Um, just way, way better. Um, and, uh, you know, both genetically and pheno or phenotypically, um, it, it just, uh, yeah, trying to get those cows, you know, we all done it. We've, we've made a feed change and, and lost production on our 200 plus cows or 250 days yeah. of milk cows. And th- those cows, they just, they just don't bounce back. And so if we have the fresher our herd, the, the more return on investment we have for feed because of production levels. And more often than not, what we see in our in our field is that we're trying to shoot for conception levels when the real issue isn't conception, it's it's in the transition pen and we haven't yeah. created a healthy environment through the fresh area to create a conception. And that's the bigger frustration we get at our, at our level. At the producer level, you know, we have to deal with what we have sometimes and know where our bottlenecks are. But, you know, 
too often the answer is, you know, if I'm a 35, if I'm, if I'm under a 40 production liter production herd, I, in my opinion, there's no, in no way should we be moving voluntary wait period to, to gain production or milk yield. There's just no way we can justify trading off 35 liters at the end of lactation for 50 liters at the start of the next lactation or or, 60 liters. Yeah. And it's, it's just, uh, it's interesting, right? When you get talking about all this and I know that these conversations on Twitter can get kind of interesting when people, when a bunch of people start throwing their opinions in, which is good. Like it's a good thing to, it's a good uh, kind of fishbowl to have to put these ideas in. But I think the fundamentals like you go back to is if you transition your cows well, you shouldn't be afraid of, you know, even pushing your voluntary wait period back to 70, 75 days. Like I've seen herds do that. Like, is that something that is more common now with high producing herds or is, are you seeing less of that? Cause I know 10 years ago, guys were, you know, second heat, 40, 45 days, 50 days, they started breeding them. And the problem was, is that they couldn't get them in calf for three services. So their whole mentality was let's get as much semen in them as we can. And hopefully the law averages works out and we get some, uh, and we get a pregnancy out of it. So. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, historically, I would say that would be the case. Um, I think we've at a, at a large level, you know, we still have our monthly, weekly, depending on herd size, freshening issues. Mm-hmm. But I think we've generally found out that, you know, if we freshen a cow and healthy and she cleans, she doesn't run subclinical cases of ketosis or metritis. She doesn't run clinical cases of either. Um, our transition program is off. They're off and running. Um, the, those cows generally, you know, the quicker we can get to a positive energy balance, those cows cycle, we start breeding second CL structures rather than first CL structures, which is something sync programs have allowed us to do, um, or to better understand it, I would say. And, um, and the philosophy or philo- the health of the cow and, and how CL structures are, are, are developed um, has, has really, sync programs have really allowed us to focus on that and understand why, say 10 years ago, a cow didn't catch at 45 days. Mm-hmm. And why a cow didn't catch at even second service or third service, or, you know, if we were doing it some dairy comp analysis, why this farm has poor under 90 day conception, but has great hundred day conception. Yeah. Well, the reality mm-hmm. is it wasn't the transition program and they weren't back to a positive energy balance quick enough to create healthy CL structures. So, I think that was what something that say 10, 15 years ago was the biggest thing. Yeah. Throw as much services as we can at them. But the reality is I don't know anyone. It's kind of where everybody, in my opinion, gets confused is conception's not repeatable. When we look at a say pregnancy rate formula, there's nothing saying that Gary's going to go out and breed this cow and she's going to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have my historical reference from the last year, say, that says there's a good 40 to 45%, maybe higher, maybe lower, that I'm going to get this cow pregnant. But at point of breeding, there's nothing to say this cow, I, I can't, at best, I have a 40% chance of getting that cow pregnant. Mathematically. If, mathematically. And, and if yeah. I could wave a wand and say she's going to get pregnant at day 110, then that would, that's all roses if we can predict that kind of stuff. But the reality is we can't. And... um 
that's where, you know, can, like I said, conception rate's not repeatable um, when we look at a formula. The only thing we can control at time of breeding is that we bred that cow. So heat detection and service rates are, are what drive that conversation. And they allow, so driving and focusing on those allow you to uh, ride out the highs and lows of, of conception rates. So that's kind of where, you know, we can't get lost in the weeds of trying to predict when cows are going to get pregnant at 70, 120, 150, however long you want to push it out. The, the reality is we can, we have to manage the average and um, the best way we can do that is through service rates and making sure we, you know, manage reproduction to reproduction for success for transition success in the whole. Yeah. It sounds like service rates and then making sure that if they do miss, you do catch them again. Correct. Absolutely, and get yeah. semen back in them. Yeah. And like, like we were saying earlier though, like it all comes back to that, you know, we're, we're scared of taking the peak off the top of the cows. Whereas the peaks, the peaks already been dis that, that factor similar, similar to say service rate, that factor within the equations already been predicted through transition. We know where peak is how based off how they transition. The, mm -hmm. the reality mm -hmm. is if they get pregnant, their genetic, their genetic lactation persistency kicks in at that point. We all know, we all have those cows that, you know, she gets pregnant and she dries up like over the, you know, we know that her lactation persistency is poor. Well, that's a genetic component. That's not a phenotypical or uh, not a, uh, a herd or individual. Yeah. That's not a herd level issue. No, that, that cow does yeah. will do that every single lactation. And we know that. So the, that is the genetic component of them getting pregnant. And we have cows that do the exact opposite. The, the reality is that we need to manage the average. And, and right now there's far too many people that are moving uh, voluntary wait periods for the purpose of getting a better conception rate and getting, again, getting that 35 liter milk instead of getting a pregnant calving her in and, and having her give 50 kilos. Yeah. And, and the cost of production over the, the revenue over cost of production on that is more than double. Yeah. Maintenance costs. Yeah. What, like what in your opinion, or I guess, what do you see from like a, a breeding side is kind of the optimal voluntary wait period or is it all just herd specific? Well, so I think that's a little bit where, um, again, uh, it's a, so St Steve Eicher just developed preg rate, for instance, and built a voluntary wait period. The, the voluntary wait period and preg rate are a economic factor, not a reproductive factor. Um, preg rate was originally developed as how, what is the cost of this cow being open essentially? And um, since then more programs have come in to try and you know, duplicate that formula. formula. So, when, when that was made, that, that was a decision based off, you know, the cost per day open, the value of milk lost, say, per pregnant, on, on pregnant cows. All those factors came into play to, to decide that 50 days was the optimal day of, again, attempting to rebreed a cow. Um, so when we just flippantly say we're going to move it to 90 days, that changes that financial equation when we say you know the financially the difference between a let's say a 30 preg rate 
at 50 days is financially wildly different than a preg rate at 30 at 90 days. Mm-hmm. Um, the preg rate at 90 days is, is similar to a preg rate of 20% at 50 days. Okay. Um, the economic side of that. And that's where there's also been confusion of people think that preg rate and the voluntary wait period are, um, are, are uh, reproductive success or like conception and, and but it truly the, the factors behind that are economic, are economic factors, not reproductive factors. And it was just, and it's turned into more of a, a discussion of like, again, like moving that I can move my pregnancy rate and ha- or my voluntary wait period. And the result I get at that one is the exact same as the result I get at 50 days. And, and that's not true. Cause kind of got lost in the weeds. Like when you look at the voluntary wait period, that's just when that cow is eligible to be included in your preg rate, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to make sure that I had that straight. Yeah. She's eligible to be bred and she's going to be included in the calculation of your preg rate. Whereas before say, say it's at 71 days, she's included at 69 days. She's not. If your voluntary wait period is 70. Yeah. Yeah. And then every software program does a little bit different. Um, Dairy comp for instance, or is, um, the, the heat cycle starting at 50. So it's actually 11 days before and 12 days after is the 50 day, 50 days, the median. Okay. Um, so um, it, it's, it's when she enters that cycle period. Um, but that's, again, we don't want to look at the individual so much to that, you know, at a repro success standpoint. Yes, we do. But as a financial factor, we don't necessarily, we want to manage the average because that's how we get paid. And that's, again, we get paid by the volume of the bulk tank, not the, what the highest cow makes. Mm-hmm. Um, so similar, we, we don't want it, we can get carried away in the details of individual cows within a preg rate, but we definitely don't want to, or a voluntary wait period, but we definitely don't want to get too lost in making sure this cow, this one cow within the equation is a success. Yeah, it's more like a helicopter view of the herd rather than a microscope view. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you look at the whole yeah. herd as a as one unit rather than one cow in one in the herd. Yeah. So you mentioned something else too that I thought was kind of interesting and I don't you don't necessarily hear a lot about is marginal milk and I was wondering if you could maybe explain what you mean by that. So um the the the, the I guess the biggest underst- or misunderstanding I ha- I feel there's when it comes to profit of or uh, cost production and revenue over feed um, is that there, well, and we get into like dry cows, especially um, is that it costs money to keep the cow alive. And that entry level, that that's dollars and feed that we associate to keeping the cow alive is the first feed she eats. Mm-hmm. So um, we like to use, say a dry cow, a rough dry cow ration. And most dry cow rations are built to be maintenance only um, from a from a weight gain standpoint. So that's a nice number to use as a um, what it costs to keep that cow alive within your herd. Um, so when I flip that into milk cows, um, the first chunk of feed that cow eats is to keep that cow alive, to keep her walking around, all that's fun stuff. So let's say, give or take, that's between eight to 10 cents of what uh, a cow would eat per day per kilo of dry matter. And so 
the, the actual milk, say, let's say for a conservative average of, let's say a herd average of 35, the, the milk production comes from the last 13 to 18 cents of the ration. And so when we take that philosophy, we, we, I think we, get, we can better see why it's better that we have fresher herds because the production levels tend to be higher when my base, the base maintenance cost doesn't change. So I can get more out of the same amount. I can get more milk or more profit out of the same number of cows or in, in Canada where we have a you know, quota system. I can get more milk or more money out of fewer cows even. And that's pure profit when we look at what it costs to make one liter of milk versus what it costs, or sorry, what it costs to keep cow alive. And then on top of that, what it costs to get that 35 liters or what, what it might be. I think other industries do it really, really well. If you look at, let's say trucking, for instance, you know, no trucking company is going to show their costs as, you know, their, their break-even point isn't, you know, both ways delivery. Their, their break-even point is the one-way delivery and their profit is the backhaul. I don't find in the dairy industry, we think the same way. And so if we can maximize the profit that we get by through extra milk, then that's, you know, if we, I don't know, a good example is, you know, arenas or Pick a pick a bad NHL team, say the Oilers or something. <laughs> you got to be the careful. We got stuff. Western Canadian listeners on here. So. I know my, <laughs> all my higher ups and they're in a West too, and there are a couple of them are Oilers and fans, Oil Flames yeah. fans. So. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, they deserve it. So, um, <laughs> but anyways, is the best one of the best examples too is you know no sports franchise break the break even point isn't uh, eighteen thousand fans in the building break-even points based off 13, maybe 10,000 fans in the building. And every fan after the 10,000 fan is 100% profit. And we need to think more like that within the dairy industry that let's say 30 is our minimum. And every leader we get after that, the Gordy Jones philosophy of, you know, for every uh, pound of dry matter, I get two pounds of milk, two and a half pounds of milk production. Yeah. If we take that and put that in milk cow herds, we won't be, we our profit margin will grow rap will considerably grow. Well, like a, a cow, it doesn't matter. So a cow is gonna need ten megacal a day, ten or eleven megacal a day, just to keep breathing and walking around and and have the energy to walk up to the feed bunk to eat some more, so that she can produce milk and sustain a calf and, and do all those other things. So it's it's interesting like we've got a base number that's our cow is going to eat you know say i don't know like if we use a 20 kilo of dry matter intake for instance i'm just going to use this as an example the first seven or eight are just to keep her alive and the rest is your milk like like you said with the gordy jones kind of theory like that last bite we're in the last bite business and the more dry matter they eat the more milk they're going to produce after a certain point yeah and like the last bite like that's always interesting right is what cow eats the last bite when is the last bite yeah exactly well in enough farms the the last bite of the day is basically scraps because you know there's you know some long long forage left maybe but most of the grain's gone but who's eating that last bite generally speaking it's your high high production cows yeah so so you're more aggressive cows. 
Yeah, well, for sure. And yeah. that's, you know, what that, you know, maybe, you know, depending on herd size, maybe 10% is too much overfeed, but that's what that's about is, and if we manage, you know, Gordy's a big fan of, for example, again, is uh, a big fan of um, weighing or testing our leftovers at the end of the day to find out what nutrient values left left at the end of the day that our top producing cows are left with eating. And if that isn't fractionally close to what we dropped in the start of the day, there's a lot of milk being left on the table. Well, the other thing and, you got to uh, think about too is uh, like if you think – like if a producer's feeding were for 1% refusal at the bunk and they're cleaning it up 24 hours later, when was that feed bunk actually empty? Yeah. You know, is it empty at 5% where that cow's got to reach across to try and grab that little last little bit of dry matter to, to make that extra pound of milk. Right. Like we can, we can see it on, actually, it's kind of neat. We can see on um, activity systems with rumination that we can see, you know, how long we want basically, Herds to average somewhere between around three, no lower than three to five percent of cows eating at any given time. Mm-hmm. And um, what so when you do a group overviews on herds, you can you can see exactly essentially if it drops below that, it's because basically the the uh, the plate was empty or the plate was poor for that cow and the, or the group of herd herd or group or cow that went to the bunk. And you can see herds that will tell you they feed for one percent or even three percent. And the reality is the last three hours before milking, their percent of herd drops off dramatically, well, dramatically, but drops below 3% of cows. And that's not normal. That's usually under being underfed. Yeah. And what can we gain from a marginal milk standpoint by adding $50 to the overall ration of, and in this case, in most cases, this, what we're talking about now is basically just more total feed right not just you know we're not talking about adding fifty dollars a grain or protein we're talking about just the actual meat and potatoes of the ration um the, the other marginal milk like i think a lot of people would understand we're really dead is is palm fat for instance right mm-hmm. and palm fat you know if we take again august 1st maybe we need to get a little more out of a cow you take your average 35 liter cow at three nine you know she's going to be in the ballpark of 1.35 um, kilos of butter fat per day. And if we add uh, 45 cents to the ration of let's say palm fat at a conservative 200 grams, give or take again, and we get a conservative response of let's say 0.2 on that same 35 liters, we're looking at basically uh, a 70 cent pure profit decision on that cow, that cow, make 70 cents more that day on on that value on top of the cost of the pump that being put in so that's the kind of little things that you know we, we got to remember we already had the 35 at 39 for example and if we yeah. bump that cow for yeah. one that's pure profit on the same on the same cow yeah and that's a good point that the yeah we've already made the base so we this is our, yeah. we got the base made so this is the this is the stake in the that extra little chunk of steak at the end of the day, right? So, or an extra little bit of cream on top and literally just to kind of backtrack a little bit. You had some numbers a while ago we had talked about on cows in production, like after they were pregnant, over 200 days in milk. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know if you had those in front of you or if you remember what we were talking about with that. Yeah, like, I remember uh, I remember that what we we're talking about. the uh, So that conversation was about 
getting cows, conceiving cows, conceiving um, over 200 days. Um, it, and it's a little herd herd specific, but the ballpark is around 200 to 225 days. Um, that those cows, the next lactation, give somewhere around 70 to 65 to 70 percent of the milk previously made. I believe that's the one you're talking about. Yeah. So um, that comes back to again, um, you know, if we are going to make, if we are going to move our voluntary wait period, and we understand that conception's not repeatable, we are going to know that we're going to not know. We're going to accept that we're going to have, you know, a handful of the bottom end of the herd have a either longer days dry. So they're going to have more days on feed that way. And we're going to raise body condition score as a, at the herd level. Um, and, and on top of that, we're going to have more cows conceived after, again, generally speaking, the average herd is going to have more cows conceived after 200 days. The downside of that, of course, is yes, the, the upside is yes, we gain some late lactation milk. The downside is that those cows, because of body condition, usually just body condition score changes that lead to subclinical ketosis, um, subclinical or subclinical ketosis, subclinical or subclinical metritis, that those cows turn around. The next lactation either don't get pregnant again because of poor reproductive health, because of the fresh events, but also because of the transition depression, they also give less milk. And Mm -hmm. uh, so again, that leads back to, you know, there's way more at play than just trying to catch 35 liters at $4 or $5 per cost of dry matter per kilo of butter fat. And that's why if we can gain an extra three to $4 through milking a healthier fresh cow herd or fresher herd of cows, sorry, then trying to focus on our best 20% of cows and having the whole herd slide in days and total days in milk, then, you know, there are, uh, there are, there are, what are they, how do they say that there's uh, unknown consequences mm-hmm. that you have to basically live through to, to realize. But the reality is if we can keep them fresh, their body condition score maintains far more consistently and basically we start that wheel turning and and the wheel just continues to roll and before you know it you're running 45 easy conception and 40 50 easy conception and and you know still maintaining that 11 to 12 to 13,000 kilos of milk per cow yeah and and you got to think too like just me thinking out loud here if a producer's breeding a bunch of cows over 200 days in milk is the real issue go back to transition because yeah, well, 100 like, that's where the issue is it, like in very very few cases is it is it a is it is it a situation where we shorted the cows on energy as a milk cow to not get cows into reproductive success that that you know guys like you would lose your job faster than faster than anything if if that became the issue right as far as from a nutrition base um that that just happens very very rare there's there's chances that you can miss people can misread farms or advisors can misread nutrition uh breakdowns of feed but the reality is nine times out of ten it it, it's 100 in the transition pen 
and uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it, it, it's it's very quickly the herd, you know, with any level of reproductive failure or uh, sorry transition failure that you add a heat cycle, a heat cycle and a half to you know, average days open in, in no time. And that's 100%. Every day open is 100% on the back end of lactation. Yeah. And, it, that, and they're gaining weight. Yeah. And their weight and all those, all those factors start yeah. kicking in, yeah. start adding length to, to the days in milk. And then the, the other downside is you're only, you're only made, instead of making $15 of profit per day over feed, you're only making $10 of profit per day over feed. So you gotta, you gotta like, it's, um, but we all remember the one cow that lived and gave 15,000 kilos, but forgot the 10 cows that died or, you know, two cows that died and eight cows that did poorly because of under the exact same circumstances. But we, you know, we remember Betsy, the, the you know, our prized possession and forget that, you know, she's only 1% of our hundred cow tank yeah. and the, bottom 50% of our herd costs us more than the top 50% of the herd. The other thing I think about too, or producers should think about too, is if, if you've got a finite number of stalls and say you got a hundred stalls and you got a hundred cows and you're hanging on to some cows because you don't want to dry them up yet, or, you know, you can't dry them up yet because they'll be dry too long. That cow's going to displace a high producing cow. That's going to do 2.1, 2.2 kilos of, of butterfat out to the door versus a late lactation cow that's maybe only doing 0.8 kilograms of butterfat out the door, something like that, right? So I think we yeah, just have no, to... I think we've all lived... I, I still remember the day uh, I used to work for um, a farmer in my younger high school years and early, right out of high school, um, that we, we put we, a 250 cow herd-ish we, we put 42 cows dry, sold or put dry 42 cows one day and the tank went up. And so, you know, <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a combination of, you know, call cows and, and like lower producing cows and overcrowding and, and whatnot. But the reality is on a cost per cow per day of feed, we fed the same ration. Yeah. Yeah. It's we what just makes more sense. We better utilize the feed nutrient nutrients to milk, and so the, the that that that's the bottom line is that we didn't change anything else we of the inputs on a per cow basis, but we gained uh, I can't remember again we we gained something like six or seven hundred liters of, of pure profit that day. Yeah, on, on shipping the exact same amount of milk on the per cow basis feed, and. Yes, we're not going to replicate that exact example every day. No, but the re the reality is 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 that if we understand that's the outcome, then we have how do we how do we manage that number? And the best way to manage that number is by having fresh cows, fresh cows, and fresh cows, and fresh cows, and we have to create that and fresh cows, but healthy fresh cows, and that's yes. through proper reproduction by you know not managing production yield at the end of lactation but reproductive success at the front end of lactation and and you know does that mean we have to have a dry off plan you know, um, I, I i don't have experience specifically with pmrs but like i think that'd be relatively more simple in a pmr situation than a tmr situation where you have to maybe sort cows out or put them on hay or cut off water for a day whatever trick you want to use 
But the reality is the second we accept 35 liters for instead of, or not accept, but we're, we're scared of that transition program. So we accept 35 liters instead of shooting for 50 liters from the fresh cow, from that same fresh cow and we milk her for 20 days at $10 per day instead of our profit, instead of $15 per day of profit. When she's only, the average cow again is only gonna live 15 to 1700 days in our herd. Yeah, and I mean, you have to, I like for me, when I, I look at a farm, I just kind of look at it like, are we making a two kilo decision or are we making a 0.8 kilo decision? Like, are we making a 50 liter decision or are we making a 30 liter decision? when you're when you're looking at um some numbers like this so and maybe that's something we should look at is unproductive days of life like if you've got a cow that's got you know you're averaging 2.4 lactations or 2.7 lactations or whatever it is you know plus you have to raise that animal and you've got dry periods involved like i understand people look at productive days of life but like how many unproductive days of life where that cow is not contributing anything to the bank account she's taking withdrawal 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 and not doing any deposits right so i like again that brings up like a another interesting twitter discussion we had this one or i had a a while ago but i think we live in it we live in a little bit of a world is and, and it's partly driven by we want to extend cow lives because they are means each individual we are more profitable per individual um, uh, individual lifetime that cow lives. Um, mm-hmm. But getting back to your example, the true measure for the producer is I have a hundred stalls. How can I maximize a hundred stalls? Mm-hmm. And I have to put the most profitable cows in every stall. And so, but we get hung up on old cows a little bit and 100% old cows are um, by far our more, most, again, when we get into feed efficiencies and, and stuff like that, maximizing feed inputs, they are our most profitable, profitable cows because they similar amount of feed, but they produce more milk. Um, that's not rocket science, but the, re- the reality is, is that each cow has basically a little bit of a best before date. And you know, we, we can pretty well, you know, let's say two, using 200 days open as, as a, as a reference point, we, we can pretty well predict what cows after that are going to start their, you know, late lactation or uh, not late, late lifetime sags. Uh, I, I sag for a better, lack of a better word, but basically cows peak between three, four, maybe fifth lactation. Yeah. By six, seven, cows that live long enough to be six, seven, generally speaking, as a statistic anyways, they're, they're usually giving less than a third lactation, second lactation, or sometimes even a first lactation cow. But we, le- we hung on to that cow in the name of longevity. And the reality is we, we're, we're, we chose to keep that cow to be less profitable than the two-year-old that we genetically should be far outproduce that cow. You know, if we're breeding for what we want and understand how genetics work. Um, and um, so... We, we kind of, you know, plus those old cows generally are where our maintenance issues are from a veterinary standpoint, from a, a labor standpoint. So it's much more profitable to get 11.5, let's say from a two-year-old than a, an older cow that you should have shipped yeah. that older cow yeah. lactation earlier. If she's given 11.5 and your two-year-old's average 11. Not every cow needs to be an old cow. 
know and right and, ones do. and it's going to be broken record keith here saying the same things but um i think i've told producers and talked to producers a lot like you have to assess whether that cow can physically handle another calving another transition when she calves in whether you're not going to breed her or whether you're going to breed her back or not and i think that's when you have to make those tough decisions is sure it's a great old cow but is that cow going to physically be able to calve in another time and be as profitable as a two-year-old that she might be taking there or a or a heifer that she might be taking the stall space of yeah and, and the, the best part is we can to a high level predict those cows yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's nothing more than the data is usually on your computer, uh, as a producer. Um, we just have to trust it and not, not again, nine times out of 10, that cow that gave, you know, let's say for, again, for an example, 13,000 as a second or as a third caver and 14,000 as a fourth caver, and then dropped to 12,000 as a fifth caver, the, the chance of that cow back jumping back up to 14 or 15,000 is almost zero. Yeah. Um, but we, we always, she's such a good old, you're like you said, she's such a good old cow. She's going to, she, she'll balance back and, or she just had a crap. The answer is 99% no, she's not. And we need to make her do not breed and sell her on her best day. And, and instead of breeding her again and selling, you know, maybe not creating a, a two-year-old or selling a two-year-old that has, again, anywhere from 30 to $45,000 with her or kilos of milk in her um at much more efficient rates than an old cow at that point yeah and uh just to kind of circle back to the voluntary wait period i just wanted to i was thinking about take home messages with the with the podcast and i think my opinion would be don't mess with your voluntary wait period but what you could do is mess with your dry period on the other end too, right? Like you have that option. We have the records in dairy comp, you know, roughly when she's going to calve. And I mean, an older cow, you can shorten her up to, you know, 45 days pretty comfortably without, you know, robbing from the next lactation. I'm not sure I go that low on heifers, but, or on first lactation animals, but, you know, we have the ability to manipulate some of those numbers. And if you are, you know, incentive time looking for some of that tail end milk that, you know, you might lose, you know, milking for another couple of three weeks and, and, and try and capture it on that end rather than making a management decision on all your cows to, to accommodate, you know, one or two cows in your herd. Yeah. Um, as far as, yeah. So like I said earlier, like the vast majority of herds do not achieve 30% of the herd pregnant by 70 days in milk or prior to peak or uh, at, which is after peak. Um, so if 70% of your herd is getting pregnant after peak, then genetically they take over genetics take over on lactation persistency. And so we're, if we're going to move voluntary wait period to, uh, um, to achieve some level of more milk through higher peak, the reality is we're, we're already past that. So again, we're making a decision economically that is going to negatively impact 70% of our herd and positively impact 30% of our herd. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I've only seen a handful of herds where that isn't true. Um, and right now we have herds that are, I would say way less, like again, 10% of the herd is producing 35 or um, 35 liters at dry off. And, and like, I would challenge anyone to go, to go on their dairy comp and, and go check your, and if you, especially if, if you have um, daily yields in your dairy comp uh, or any, I, 
it can be done in any software program. But average out your average last day of milk on yeah, your, milk it dry off. And, and you know, again, we're talking about this, and and people forget that 35, 33 to thirty five, forty percent of their herd is two year olds. So yeah, very rarely do as a two year old average over thirty five liters at dry off. You know, we yes, we could get thirty percent of old cows. But the reality is the first 35% of two-year-olds aren't even in the equation. So now we're really only talking about 40 to 60, 65, sorry, 65 to 60% of our herd that we're actually talking about as we, you know, we're going to collect old milk or um, late lactation milk or easy milk. So we're usually talking about making a negative decision on a, at a herd level for close to 80% of the cows in the herd to gain 35 liters of 10% or 20% of the herd. Yeah. And, and the economics are not good at all on it. No. So I think that's a good spot to end it, Gary. I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know we've had some pretty good discussions on, on things like this and it's just, uh, I like to be thought provoking, right? Like, uh, yep. think, uh, think about things a little bit differently than, uh, what your grandpappy and pappy did when they were milking cows because you know the times have changed and um the cows nowadays are thoroughbreds professional athletes like whatever whatever comparison you want to make uh they're just uh they're incredible animals now so we just got to make sure that we're making management decisions to kind of help uh push them along and how help them live up to their potential so we got to stay out of the way yeah, <laughs> I think I've, st- I've said before. So, and I've said before, but you know, too many times Gary's on the back, on the name or, or on the mistakes of too many herd cows in my herd, even. And um, it, uh, yeah, it's uh, we got to. It's amazing what they'll do when we let cows be cows. I'll uh, I'll do my Canadian duty and do like a, a comparison. It's kind of like uh, Dave Tippett getting it Connor McDavid's way. I don't think he coaches him too much because Connor's just a gonna do what he's gonna do and hopefully that repents our sins here a little bit with the oilers fans oh i'm not even worried about the oilers <laughs> all right i'll take well the leaves the leaves, <laughs> leaves, leaves anyways uh thanks again gary i really appreciate it Probably. and uh i wish you all the best thanks same to you thanks for listening this episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at trout nutrition canada and our sure Game dealer partners If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.